The Nightmare Room by A. Conan Doyle This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Louise J. Bell The Nightmare Room by A. Conan Doyle The sitting room of the Masons was a very singular apartment. At one end, it was furnished with considerable luxury. The deep sofas, the low, luxurious chairs, the voluptuous statuettes, and the rich curtains hanging from deep and ornamental screens of metalwork made a fitting frame for the lovely woman who was the mistress of the establishment. Mason, a young but wealthy man of affairs, had clearly spared no pains and no expense to meet every want and every whim of his beautiful wife. It was natural that he should do so, for she had given up much for his sake. The most famous dancer in France, the heroine of a dozen extraordinary romances, she had resigned her life of glittering pleasure in order to share the fate of the young American, whose austere ways differed so widely from her own. In all that wealth could buy, he tried to make amends for what she had lost. Some might, perhaps, have thought it in better taste had he not proclaimed this fact, had he not even allowed it to be printed. But, save for some personal peculiarities of the sort, his conduct was that of a husband who has never, for an instant, ceased to be a lover. Even the presence of spectators would not prevent the public exhibition of his overpowering affection. But the room was singular. At first it seemed familiar, and yet a longer acquaintance made one realize its sinister peculiarities. It was silent, very silent. No footfall could be heard upon those rich carpets and heavy rugs. A struggle, even the fall of a body, would make no sound. It was strangely colorless also, in a light which seemed always subdued. Nor was it all furnished in equal taste. One would have said that when the young banker had lavished thousands upon this boudoir, this inner jewel case for his precious possession, he had failed to count the cost and had suddenly been arrested by a threat to his own solvency. It was luxurious where it looked out upon the busy street below. At the farther side, it was bare, Spartan, and reflected, rather, the taste of a most ascetic man 
than of a pleasure-loving woman. Perhaps that was why she only came there for a few hours, sometimes two, sometimes four, in the day. But while she was there, she lived intensely. Within this nightmare room, Lucille Mason was a very different and a far more dangerous woman than she was in any other room. Dangerous, that was the word. Who could doubt it? Who saw her delicate figure stretched upon the great bearskin which draped the sofa? She was leaning upon her right elbow, her delicate but determined chin resting upon her hand, while her eyes, large and languishing, adorable but inexorable, stared out in front of her with a fixed intensity which had in it something vaguely terrible. It was a lovely face, a child's face, and yet nature had placed there some subtle mark, some indefinable expression, which told that a devil lurked within. It had been noticed that dogs shrank from her, and that children screamed and ran from her caresses. There are instincts that are deeper than reason. Upon this particular afternoon, something had greatly moved her. A letter was in her hand, which she read and reread with a tightening of those delicate little eyebrows and a grim setting of those delicious lips. Suddenly she started, and a shadow of fear softened the feline menace of her features. She raised herself upon her arm, and her eyes were fixed eagerly upon the door. She was listening intently, listening for something which she dreaded, most certainly dreaded to hear. For a moment, a smile of relief played over her expressive face. Then, with a look of horror, she stuffed her letter into her dress. She had hardly done so before the door opened and a young man came briskly into the room. It was Archie Mason, her husband, the man whom she had loved, the man for whom she had sacrificed her European fame, the man whom, now, she regarded as the one obstacle to a new and wonderful experience. The American was a man about thirty, clean-shaven, athletic, dressed to perfection in a closely cut suit which outlined his perfect figure. He stood at the door with his arms folded, looking intently at his wife, with a face which might have been a handsome, sun-tinted mask, 
save for those vivid eyes. She still leaned upon her elbow, but her eyes were fixed on his. There was something terrible in the silent exchange. Each interrogated the other, and each conveyed the thought that the answer was vital. He might have been asking, What have you done? She, in her turn, seemed to be saying, What do you know? Finally, he walked forward, sat down upon the bearskin beside her, and, taking her delicate ear gently between his fingers, turned her face towards his. Lucille, he said, are you poisoning me? She sprang back from his touch with horror in her face and protests upon her lips. Too moved to speak, her surprise and her anger showed themselves, rather, in her darting hands and her convulsed features. She tried to rise, but his grasp tightened upon her wrist. Again he asked his question, but this time it had deepened in its terrible significance. Lucille, why are you poisoning me? You are mad, Archie, mad, she gasped. His answer froze her blood. With pale, parted lips and blanched cheeks, she could only stare at him in helpless silence. He drew a small bottle from his pocket and held it before her eyes as grim evidence of her guilt. It is from your jewel case, he said. Twice she tried to speak and failed. At last, the words came, slowly, one by one, from her contorted lips. At least, I never used it. Again, his hand sought his pocket. From it, he drew a sheet of paper, which he unfolded and held before her. It is the certificate of Dr. Angus. It shows the presence of twelve grains of antimony. I have, also, the evidence of Duval, the chemist who sold it. Her face was terrible to look at. There was nothing to say. She could only lie with that fixed, hopeless stare like some fierce creature in a fatal trap. Well, he asked. There was no answer, save a movement of desperation and appeal from the beautiful woman. Why, he said. I want to know why. As he spoke, his eye caught the edge of the letter which she had thrust into her bosom. 
In an instant, he had snatched it. With a cry of despair, she tried to regain it, but he held her off with one hand while his eyes raced over it. Campbell, he gasped. It was Campbell. She had found her courage again. There was nothing more to conceal. Her face set hard and firm. Her eyes were deadly as daggers as she faced him. Yes, she said, it is Campbell. My God, Campbell, of all men. He rose and walked swiftly about the room. Campbell, the grandest man that he had ever known, a man whose whole life had been one long record of self-denial, of courage, of every quality which marks the chosen man. And yet, he, too, had fallen a victim to this siren and had been dragged down to such a level that he had betrayed in intention, if not in actual deed, the man whose hand he shook in friendship. It was incredible. And yet, here was the passionate, pleading letter, imploring his wife to fly and share the fate of a penniless man. Every word of the letter showed that Campbell had, at least, no thought of Mason's death which would have removed all difficulties. That devilish solution was the outcome of the deep and wicked brain which brooded within that perfect habitation in the mind of the woman he loved. Mason was a man in a million, a philosopher, a thinker, with a broad and tender sympathy for others. For an instant, his soul had been submerged in his bitterness. He could, for that brief period, have slain both his wife and Campbell, and gone to his own death with the serene mind of a man who has done his plain duty. But already, as he paced the room, milder thoughts had begun to prevail. How could he blame Campbell? He knew the absolute witchery of this woman. It was not only her wonderful physical beauty. She had a unique power of seeming to take an interest in a man in writhing into his inmost conscience, in penetrating those parts of his nature which were too sacred for the world, and in seeming to stimulate him towards ambition and even towards virtue and splendid kindliness. It was just there that the deadly cleverness of her net was shown. He remembered how it had been in his own case, 
She was free, then, or so he thought, and he had been able to marry her. But suppose she had not been free. Suppose she had been married. And suppose she had taken possession of his soul in the same way. Would he have stopped there? Would he have been able to draw off with his unfulfilled longings? He was bound to admit that with all his New England strength, he could not have done so. Why, then, should he feel so bitter with his unfortunate friend, who was in the same position? It was pity and sympathy that filled his mind as he thought of Campbell, caught by this wonderful siren. And she? There she lay, upon the sofa, a poor, broken butterfly, her dreams dispersed, her plot detected, her future dark and perilous. Even for her, poisoner as she was, his heart relented. He knew something of her history. He knew her as a spoiled child from birth, untamed, unchecked, sweeping everything easily before her with her cleverness, her beauty, and her charm. She had never known an obstacle. Now one had risen across her path and she had madly and wickedly tried to remove it in the only way she could think of. But if she had wished to remove it, was not that in itself a sign that he had been found wanting, that he was not the man who could bring her peace of mind and contentment of heart? He was too stern and self-contained for that sunny, volatile nature. He was of the North, and she of the South, drawn strongly together for a time by the law of opposites, but impossible for permanent union. He should have seen this, he should have understood it, it was on him that the responsibility lay. His heart softened towards her, as it would to a little child that was in helpless trouble. For a time, he had paced the room in silence, his lips compressed, his hands clenched till his nails had marked his palms. Now, with a sudden movement, he sat beside her and took her cold and inert hand in his. You shall choose between us, dear, he said. If really you are sure, sure, you know, that Campbell could make you happy, I will not be the obstacle. 
A divorce, she gasped. His hand closed upon the bottle of poison. You can call it that, said he. A new, strange light shone in her eyes as she looked at him. Archie, she cried, you could forgive me even that. He smiled at her. You are only a little wayward kitty after all. Her arms were outstretched to him when there was a tap at the door and the maid entered in the strange, silent fashion in which all things moved in that room. There was a card on the tray. Captain Campbell! I will not see him. Mason sprang to his feet. On the contrary, he is most welcome. Show him up this instant. A few minutes later, a tall, sunburnt young soldier had been ushered into the room. He came forward with a smile upon his pleasant features. But as the door closed behind him, and the faces before him resumed their natural expressions, he paused, irresolutely. Well? he asked. Mason stepped forward and laid his hand upon his shoulder. I bear no ill will, he said. Ill will? Yes, I know all, but I might have done the same myself had the position been reversed, Mason quietly told him. Campbell stepped back and looked a question at the lady. She nodded and shrugged her graceful shoulders. Mason smiled. You need not fear that it is a trap for a confession. We have had a frank talk upon the matter. See, Jack, you were always a sportsman. Here is a bottle. Never mind how it came here. If one or the other of us drinks it, it will clear the situation. His manner was wild, almost delirious. Lucille, which shall it be? There had been a strange force at work in the nightmare room. A third man was there, though not one of the three who stood in the crisis of their life's drama had time or thought for him. How long he had been there, how much he had heard, none could say. In the corner farthest from the little group, he was crouched against the wall, a sinister, snake-like figure, silent and scarcely moving, save for a nervous twitching of his clenched right hand, intent, watching eagerly every new phase of the drama. Are you game, Jack? 
asked Mason. The soldier nodded. No, no, cried the woman. Mason had uncorked the bottle, and turning to the side table, he drew out a pack of cards. We can't put the responsibility on her, he said. Come, Jack, the best of three. The soldier approached the table. He fingered the fatal cards. The woman, leaning upon her hand, bent her face forward and stared with fascinated eyes. Then, and only then, the bolt fell. The stranger had risen, pale and grave. All three were suddenly aware of his presence. They faced him with eager inquiry in their eyes. He looked at them with something of the master in his bearing. How is it? they asked, all together. Rotten, he said. Rotten. We'll shoot the whole scene again tomorrow. End of The Nightmare Room by A. Conan Doyle Recording by Louise J. Bell Sebastopol, California